welcome to the Tres Vista Talk podcast, where we engage with senior asset managers and advisors across a broad range of topics. Tres Vista is the leading outsourcing firm for the financial services industry, supporting over 1,000 clients with over 10 trillion in assets under management. Hi, this is Abhilash Jaykumar. I'm the co-founder and managing director of Tres Vista. And on today's Tres Vista Talk, I have with me John White, founder and managing partner of Moorgate Partners. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Abby, it's a real pleasure. Happy to be here. Wonderful. So I've had the privilege of knowing you, John, since early in the days of starting Trust Vista. You were one of our first partners and, you know, we've kind of grown together. But you've uh, been an entrepreneur and a business builder for a lot longer than I've been in business as a professional individually. You know, maybe for our audience, you know, it would be great if you could kind of share your background. Sure. Um so look, we met back when I started Morgate in 2010 with my uh, partner, Mike Alexander. Both Mike and I had spent uh, the bulk of our career, 20, 20 years or so at JP Morgan, um, running one of the, uh, the, one of the teams at JP Morgan, one of the industry groups uh, where I was head of that group uh, was my last job at JP Morgan, the media and telecommunications group. We started Morgate um, when the consolidation occurred during the financial crisis we noticed that a number of clients were sort of not getting the same level of, of advice that they had been from the bulge bracket firms. And that was largely because they were smaller than the target market. Candidly, these were companies that were, you know, in often cases, private, uh, certainly less than 2 billion in enterprise value. Um, and a lot of those clients were getting financial advice in terms of bond or bank deals, but literally, literally um, very little strategic advice. Uh, so when we started Morgate, that was the, target group of clients, many of which were in the sector that we knew well, which was uh, meeting communications. And then we've since broadened into a number of the tech sectors. Um, but largely our client base is looking for, as we like to say, you know, Wall Street was really set up for everything beyond the one yard line, you know, get the deal over the, over the finish line. While we're re- we think we're very good at that, we uh, oftentimes focus on the other 99 yards. We spend a lot of time. We're very hands-on. Uh, we're a, more of a consultative firm to clients. Many times we're on retainer for multiple years for these clients. Often uh, our clients are families and family offices where they're looking for strategic advice to either make an investment or to divest of an existing business they may own. Um, so we, we've been doing it for about 10 years. We think we've built up a very nice niche in the marketplace. You know, this is our vocation. We've been doing it between Mike and I for over 50 years. Um, we're quite good at giving both advice from an M&A and, and complicated transaction structures, as well as we've done a fair bit of capital markets work ourselves. So oftentimes we're alongside their underwriters, uh, helping them negotiate terms uh, and get the best placement of a security. So that's sort of us in a nutshell. Thanks for that, John. You know, one of the things you talked about is how during the financial crisis, the nature of banking and relationships evolved. I started my career shortly after Glass-Steagall got repealed and you started seeing investment banks getting into the lending business. And I know there was a lot of challenges about you know deals being done away because a Merrill Lynch couldn't participate in a credit facility. How has kind of investment banking evolved from you know the the days where you know the lending was kept separate to what happened in the financial crisis to where it is now? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I think the combination of those two platforms, an advisory platform and a financing platform, has been tremendously beneficial. I mean, you only need to look at the league tables to see uh, that 
for for many of these companies, whether it be a JP Morgan or uh, a Bank of America, they're now leading in both categories. So the two the two uh, products, for lack of better terms, seem to work well in terms of a market share. But again, our firm, you know, we have two offices: New York, San Francisco. We have 10, uh, 10 employees. We're really focused at the area that the bulge break bracket firms, excuse me, are not focused on. We're focused much more down market, $3 billion. I would I would say largely a lot of private companies under a billion dollars, particularly family-owned businesses that historically may have gotten it, it, a lot of M&A attention. They're just not getting that now. It's, they're just not big enough for uh, the M&A department at most of the bulge bracket firms to focus on. So that's really the niche we've carved in the marketplace. Yeah. And so given this current crisis that's going on, what dislocation and evolution in the advisory industry do you see coming out of this? Well, a couple things I would say offhand. Um, one is that, you know, I think the, the way in which deals are going to be done going forward may change a little bit because of the pandemic. Um, it's sort of been reversed initially. You used to have, if you were running a buy side or a sell side process, there was oftentimes an initial vetting and then there was management meetings. Today, what we're seeing is very intensive data rooms. In fact, Zoom interviews with management teams that are all downloaded into the data room. And all of the process allows for a potential buyer um, to make a determination much earlier on whether this is really an asset they're interested in. And we're seeing as a result, the, you know, the formal management meeting and site visit being put very much at the end. When I started 25 years ago, that was more common. Uh, and then we went to this process where there was, you know, an initial bid, a management meeting, and then you went to even more elaborate data rooms. Uh, today, it's being a little bit reversed. Now, you have to be a little bit careful with that because when you're selling something where there's competitors or potential buyers, you obviously have to be careful as to what you put in the data room uh, at the outset. But what we're seeing is a lot more work done on the front end to make a determination as to whether this was is an asset that that particular party is interested in buying. Yeah, interesting. You know, you talked about how a lot of your relationships are with family offices, and certainly the family office has taken a greater uh, prevalence and importance as a capital source in the middle market over the last couple of decades and almost as its own class of LPs. These days, there's just certain businesses that are better suited for longer term capital and the way that capital base thinks about allocations is very different than traditional, you know, five-year private equity hold periods. What do you find with the, those family office relationships really distinguishes you as an advisor for them? Um, uh, one qualifier there, um, Abby, is that we actually um, advise more private families that happen to be own they happen to own corporations as a as opposed to multifamily offices. Um, where they're managing money for a group of families. That's really not the, the client base that we spend a significant amount of time. What I think differentiates us is we're not transaction oriented. You know, some of these families will work with for three, four years on a modest retainer, helping them determine strategic objectives and goals for the next generation. Um, so we're much more entrenched, longer tail as an advisor. A little bit the way it was done, dare I say, you know, 50, 70 years ago, where there were fewer advisors and there was much more of a longer tail relationship before there was any transaction involved. So I think that's probably our biggest differentiator. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, certainly, you know, there's no dictionary definition of family office and it ranges all over the place. And, you know, I, I know a lot of folks who create their wealth in a certain business, keep that business, it becomes a cash cow and dividend, but then that cash needs to be reinvested, right? Whether it's in strategic, you know, acquisitions or, you know, diversification, um, it creates a whole set of complications for that family once they get to a certain stage. And some that, run that, that investment strategy through those businesses and some allocate it outside. That's right. In often cases, that's exactly right. Often cases, what we spend our time doing is helping them determine whether that particular business, uh, in many cases, our families own multiple businesses, whether for the next generation and going forward is the competitive dynamic in that particular business, one where you want that to be in your portfolio and a long-term hold, and then selling that business and taking that capital and redeploying it into a new business. Uh, we did that uh, at length with a couple of clients over the last few years where they got out of one more traditional media telecom business and got into a newer, more technology-based uh, business because they thought that was better for the next generations coming down. Yeah, you know, One of the things we see with a lot of private equity firms is they have a platform and add-on approach to investing, try to basically create their own strategic acquire so that they can compete with strategic buyers. With the family office clients you advise, how much of the acquisition is looking at is something directly aligned with the existing business they're in versus how much is it that they want diversification? That, that's a great question. I would say it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, where they got a business that they still like the general trends in the overall um, position um, going forward, I would say that they will take the approach, and we have, where we've done add-on acquisition for them. In some cases, we're divesting of a business that quite frankly is flat to deteriorating. Uh, we're taking that uh, capital that and redeploying that into a new sector. But the ultimate objective of many of these families is to create a portfolio of companies that can withstand, which we've seen quite recently, a great deal quite recently, uh, changes in sort of whether it be technology or the way business is done, which makes that business quite frankly more challenging. So they will move out of that business and into a new business that has a longer uh, shelf life, for lack of better terms. Now, apart from working with family offices, I know sometimes you switch gears and put on the sell side hat as well, right? And raise capital or run sell side yes. mandates. Yes. Um, and, you know, I'm sorry. Yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. Yeah, we do. We, we um, in fact, we've just finished up this in the last year, um, a strategic review for a private company and a uh, private equity owned and a strategic review for a public company. So we do, I would say 60% of our businesses with family and family offices and the other 30% larger with CEOs that we may have known in our, in our previous lives on Wall Street. And they're looking again, oftentimes what we get hired for is to, um, you know, to be a little bit more of a more senior team. They may be working with a, with a larger firm, but they want some more senior experience. Uh, so they'll bring us uh, alongside that advisor. Or often case, they'll just bring us in because they just want somebody who's got a little bit more uh, technical uh, capability in terms of more complex M&A issues. So one of the things I was going to ask you, so you have a lot of experience in private equity and working with family offices. When you're doing a sell-side mandate, how do you think about what's a better acquire from a form of capital? What are the dynamics of underlying business that say this is better suited for a family office to acquire or, uh, or a family business? to acquire or it's better suited to a private equity firm to come in? Well, look, at the end of the day, I think the private equity in the family office 
the family office clearly are more deliberate and take longer time, and therefore you have to be cognizant of that. Um, it's it's longer dated capital. Private equity firms are um, you know in the business of deploying capital, so they're going to be um, more focused and quite frankly quicker with respect to timing of a transaction. But in general, I think the bigger issue is how they compare to obviously a strategic buyer. That that's really where where our work, if we're representing somebody where we're selling a business, um, it becomes uh, the bigger issue is, you know, how much more value can a strategic create? And therefore, if we're selling the business, that may be a potential better buyer because uh, our client will get, a, obviously, a much better price. Um, but again, on the family office side, most important, quite frankly, is it needs to be an asset that they feel they can own for a long time and that they can deploy not only capital, but they can deploy resources from within the, the, their own business and their own family uh, generations. So they want an asset that has a fairly long tail to it. It may not be a super high growth business. That's not always necessary, but it's got real stability to that cash flow stream. Yeah. As, as far as the industries in which you're advising, obviously, when you're at JP Morgan, you're the head of the media and telecom uh, banking division there. But in the middle market, it's much more diversified. How, how does that experience translate and how important or not important is being industry focused? Look, I, ha, having been an industry banker for a number of years, I, I would uh, would always say it's it's very, very valuable to have a sense of the industry dynamics. Having said that, um, we have ironically advised in a financial services company recently where um, the expertise was much more along the structure of the transaction where they they needed real um, advice in terms of how to structure something that was somewhat complicated in terms of the deal. So those characteristics or those skill sets apply to any industry. So, you know, I would say if you've got both and you can do it in the vertical, you've got the best experience in, that's clearly the best environment for us. And which industries, subsectors do you think present the most opportunity for you in the near term, especially given the current disruption? Well, look, the way we look at the categories of uh, in the disruption is there's sort of three sets um, of assets. There's those assets that are levered and going to be impaired because they're affected tremendously by the pandemic. And so, for example, those would be assets, obviously, in retail, um, in some forms of um, traditional media distribution, i.e. theaters, businesses like that. Those businesses will struggle. They may have to take on a partner. Um, the second set of assets are those that will will survive. They're just going to be in a period where they have to recover. And, and those are the, the companies you'll see raising a lot of capital recently. They'll be in the bond market or the bank market, providing more liquidity to get through the period. But they will survive. Um, and the third category are those that are growing. Um, and those, you can imagine, are all the things that do well in this type of situation. They're infrastructure related to broadband. They're those that are technology-based. E-commerce companies are doing very well. You know, one of the things that people commented on is this perceived disconnect between the S&P index and the economy. You know, I think people forget that the S&P index is almost 60% uh, technology. And if you add the e-commerce component into it, you know, you've got the, almost the majority of the S&P index in there. And those businesses are all doing very well in a pandemic. Yeah, no, certainly, you know, I started my career 
in 2001 in tech banking, right when that blew up. And I started Trustvista nine months before Lehman Brothers collapsed. So this is my third go around this. And I think you, you know, highlighted it really well. These three categories of companies, the ones having existential crises, the ones who focus all their mental capacity on weather in the storms and the ones looking for opportunities. And certainly being aligned to a certain industry is going to drive you into one of those three buckets. But in any given industry, you still have those players. So what, from an operational perspective, where are you seeing the winners within even say e-commerce? Who are the guys who are performing well and taking advantage of disruption and who are the ones who just aren't being able to to see far enough into the future look unfortunately scale uh, helps you weather um weather a lot of things so the larger um tech and e-commerce players clearly are doing very 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 well um you know some of the smaller ones that have truly unique niches and direct relationships with their um their subscribers or their um their online readers in th- those areas they will be fine also. It's anybody who's in between that doesn't have a unique um, a unique subscription or client base, um, and it doesn't have scale. I think those will, will struggle. The infrastructure players are doing extremely well. I mean, as, as much as people think the broadband sector in the U.S. is consolidated, there are still a, quite, uh, quite a lot of broadband uh, assets out there that are, that are doing very well, and the multiples that we're seeing in the current um, – sell-side assignments that are going on uh, is, is quite robust. I mean, all you have to do is look at the public trading value of some of the pure broadband players, and they're trading at circa 14 times. So in, in that was, that's up from 11 or 12. So um, again, there's a demand, obviously, for high bandwidth infrastructure. As far as your own business development uh, processes, Obviously, you've been in this industry a long time. You're well-known. You have a lot of people calling on you. But as you've expanded and gone outside of just media, how have you sourced new business opportunities? Or is um, it entirely relationship-driven still? For us, for us, I, I, it really is relationship-driven. What we have found is um, most of uh, the connections that we make uh, are largely inbound, and those are from either CEOs who we've done work for mentioned to another CEO they're, they're having a problem or an issue and they need some sophisticated advice or candidly the families have a tendency to talk to each other so many of the new families that we're doing work for have been um, have been referrals from existing family clients happy client is the best sales force that's exactly right uh, and you know we are you know we are having conversations with a lot of bankers who are leaving the large firms for the first time after 20 years and who are contemplating setting up their own shop and, and or have, and often they don't realize the challenges of running a business, right? Being a senior banker at a big bank is not entirely the same as running your own business unit. Just as an entrepreneur, can you share kind of the, the stories that you had of making that transition and what advice you might have for someone thinking about doing something similar? Well, um, a couple of things I would say. One, um, you know, my partner and I own uh, Morgate uh, Partners and as a result own Morgate Securities and Morgate Private Capital, which are the other two entities that are subsidiaries. Um, two things I would say. One is um, the old adage, it takes twice as long and twice as much money. That is, that is certainly true. Um, secondly, you have to evolve to where um, the market, where your, your position in the market um, is valued. So that is to say... When we started, I think we were a little bit advising um, a lot of companies that were by size, but we were targeting the, the, the companies that were avoided. It was through evolving into doing some 
work for more families that we suddenly found out there are a lot of families that were in that billion dollar range that were receiving no MA advice. So figure out and be willing to evolve your, your efforts into the areas where, um, where the market sees you have a real value add. Those are two points I would make. Now, do you see any of the large banks coming down market, you know, just for winning deals in an environment like this? Sure. I, I think what, what you have a tendency to find is when, when the market slows a little bit, the larger bulge bracket firms suddenly find that that, that uh, $500 million deal is a lot more attractive uh, than it used to be. So, yes, I think uh, you will over the next six months until the M&A market, you know, returns uh, to a more robust uh, form, which is probably going to be sometime in the, in the first half of next year, I would think maybe towards the second half, you're going to see a more competition come down market. Sure. And, you know, the bulge bracket firms have the big brand names, but do you think they're equipped to provide the advice smaller companies need? Or is there inherently a different dynamic in smaller businesses that, you know, an advisor for large public companies isn't going to be equipped to right out of the gates be able to be as functional as, you know, Moorgate? Um, I think what it's, it's more the demeanor, candidly, um, that in the approach. Um, you know, we, we, as I said earlier, this is our vocation. We give advice for a living. Um, I think the patience level that we have is much greater. Um, we, we like what we do. We're, we're not particularly transaction orientated. I would think that's going to be the big difference. I think if you're a managing director at a bulge bracket firm, you know, you need to bring in deals and you need to close deals. Um, we don't. That's just not our philosophy. Never has been, never will be. Um, it's much more, as I said, we're somewhere sometimes more of a consultant than we are uh, an M&A advisor. And for your own business, you know, where do you see yourself 10 years from now? Look, um, I've often said that, you know, you, 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 it, the size of the business you're building, you have to be very careful in financial services. Um, and so I think our objective would be if we have circa 10 uh, employees today, I really don't would not want to be above 15 um, because then I think um, you're, you're potentially um, creating an environment that's that's not focused on what we do best, which is to be long-term advisors to people. Um, I think we could add some more junior resources, which would be helpful and give some of our other bankers more leverage to be even more thoughtful in front of their clients. But um, we like running a nice, profitable advisory firm. We also do focus from time to time on creating investment opportunities for our family clients through our network of CEOs that we know. So big isn't always better. Uh, and I have been there and done that. And I enjoyed my years at JP Morgan. It's a wonderful firm, but I'm really enjoying my day-to-day -day relationships and, and giving advice for a living. Yeah. You know, you were one of our early clients, like I mentioned earlier, you're much ahead of the curve on outsourcing high value at work. How, how, how does that fit with your operating strategy? Um, I, I think it's an important component. I think the world has changed um, in your ability to find best in class talent that may not be something that you have to have on your permanent payroll is a key thing. I think it just allows you, again, to be better, smarter, faster. And, you know, your firm was a tremendous advantage to us in the early stages. We were able to leverage your resources to get a lot of um, very high-quality analytical information that helped us uh, be just more powerful in front of our clients. So I think outsourcing is a tremendous benefit in financial services. Yeah, I mean... 
we, we outsource this cost savings opera efficiency, but you know, I often look at our clients who are advisors themselves, and I think of them as outsources of expertise and device and you know, certain extension, the family that are engaging with you are engaging with you for a much higher value add work. And I think if everyone recognizes what is their core competency, because we have clients who are businesses owned by families who think they want to be their own investment bankers, which usually doesn't end up working really well. And I think the people who understand where is their core competency and leverage resources where they can are the ones who are successful in the longer term. I think that's right. You're absolutely right. Well, great. Any last thoughts you'd like to share with our audience? No, I just appreciate the time. I appreciate our relationship over the years and um, it's been great to chat. Well, thank you, John. And thank you to our audience. Stay safe and we look forward to connecting with you again soon. And with that, we come to the end of this episode of the Dress Star Talk podcast. Thank you to our listeners and we would love for you to subscribe, rate and leave a review wherever you access podcasts. Please follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to stay updated on additional content. To know more about how we support our clients on due diligence, business development, portfolio management, fund administration, data analytics and other areas, feel free to visit our website and reach out to us at www.resistar.com. Any information, opinions and recommendations presented by our speakers are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of their firms or Tresvista and should not be constituted as investment advice. Mm-hmm.